This morning, uh, we are going to be in, in Mark chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 34. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, uh, if you'd follow along with me as I read it aloud. When Jesus, uh, and when, when Jesus saw that he had answered him discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any questions. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then? Uh, whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and long salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. The Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as we seek to see Christ today, on display through the power of your word, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be ready, that we would be prepared. Father, that we would take truth and accept it as truth. Father, that we would be willing to recognize those areas where we fall short of your perfect standard, knowing that when we come face to face with the word of our holy God, we will always fall short of your perfect standard. We're thankful for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the opportunity to go before you, our Heavenly Father, right now, even through Jesus Christ, your Son. So, Father, as we seek to understand who he is better, Father, as we seek to live lives that glorify him more and more, we pray, Lord, that you would challenge our hearts by the power of your word today. Lord, we just give you the praise for what you're going to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've been going through this section of Scripture together uh, for a little while now, and uh, what's called Passion Week. Passion means suffering there. That's the meaning of that word. And it's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, you remember the process. He goes into the temple. He looks around. Nobody recognizes him. Nobody says, hey, there's the Messiah. Nobody says, hey, that's what all these sacrifices are about. He's here. We can stop killing all these animals. We've got the once-for-all sacrifice here. Nobody saw that. They, they weren't really concerned about the Messiah and the temple. They were more concerned about themselves. And that's why Jesus left. And remember along the way he cursed that fig tree. He said, well, look at all those leaves. There's no fruit. That's just like the temple. Bunch of leaves, a lot of show, but no fruit. And so Jesus cast out all the money changers. He threw them right out of his father's house. And if you remember, we, we call that Jesus curses the, the temple. What he was doing, he, he or cleanses the temple. What he's doing is he's, he's cursing the temple. He's condemning the temple. The temple's going to be gone in AD 70. And it's not long after that, of course, the Sadducees, the ruling Jewish body, they're not too happy about Jesus coming in and exercising authority. And uh, really what, what uh, they in their hearts viewed as their temple, right, not God's temple. How dare he? What authority does he have to come into our temple and treat things this way? And so they go after him. And first they, they do it publicly, but Jesus answers to 
all their questions. He, he deals with their issues, and then they kind of come privately. Let's see if we can discredit them, and we've called that guerrilla warfare. We've looked at three separate rounds. First, the Pharisees came. They challenged them on the issue of taxation. Who does that coin belong to? Do we have to pay these funds, these taxes to Rome? Of course, Jesus handled it. Second round, the Sadducees come in, and they are asking a question with the goal of really making them look kind of foolish in front of people. Right? And they point back to this idea of the resurrection, and they say there's a wife, and her husband dies, and so then she has to get married to his brother, because that's next in line, and that's how they're going to care for her. He dies, and she gets married to the next brother, and so on, until seven brothers. And which husband will she have in, in, in heaven? And of course, Jesus answers and said, you don't understand what the Bible says. You don't understand the scriptures. You, you know, it, it's clear. Giving of marriage doesn't work like that in heaven. That's not how it happens. And so the third round comes up. The scribes come, and there's a scribe who comes, and he approaches Jesus on a question of biblical interpretation, and he asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, that's no problem. Right? He just answers very clearly, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, might, strength. Second is like it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Right? And so the, the scribe recognizes, wow, he answered that pretty well. And um, that's when we come to verse 34. We have had three separate rounds of guerrilla warfare Every component of what we know of as the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, have all come at Jesus with their own individual questions. And we reach here in Mark 12, verse 34, and we had finished with this verse last time. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, but here's the end. And no man after that dared ask him any questions. <laughs> they said, Okay, we're not going to go at him with questions anymore. It hasn't worked out so well for us. We were trying to tear him down, and in the eyes of everybody who saw what he's saying, we looked foolish, and he had all the answers. Let's not do that anymore. So they, they throw up their hands. We, we can't trap them. We quit. And you kind of get the idea that they just want it all to end right now. But Jesus is not okay with that. You know, the Sanhedrin wants it to be over, but Jesus isn't ready. He, he's going to launch a counterattack. He's going to go back at the Sanhedrin. He waited patiently. He listened to all of their questions until they closed their mouths. And now it's his turn. You know, this idea of a counterattack where you, you just sit there. You wait for your opponent to get out of position and then whap, you whap them. You know, I, I, I was thinking, well, what's a good example of a, of a counterattack? Uh, you know, I, I was a little bit young for uh, Muhammad Ali, but I remember hearing the stories and the accounts. And um, maybe you, you have heard of Muhammad Ali and his rope-a-dope strategy. All right, this was uh, at the Rumble in the Jungle against George Foreman. And uh, Muhammad Ali was a, a boxer, for those of you who, who don't know, but uh, he was really good at it. And um, what, what, what Muhammad Ali did, he's fighting against a fighter who is powerful, stronger than he is, and at this point... Foreman's young and Ali's get, starting to get old. Right? And so he's going up against this younger, more powerful boxer. And he, he doesn't want to lose the fight. And so he comes up with this rope-a-dope strategy. And so instead of fighting during, during the round, he, he just sits back against the ropes and he just gets pummeled. Uh, they hit him and knock him all around and he's blocking and everything. And along the way, he's getting in a shot here or there. But he just, he just takes it over and over again. And... and and, and this happens for really seven and a half rounds of just getting walloped. And the whole time he's taunting George Foreman. 
Oh, is that all you got, George? Is that all you got? I mean, that, saying that kind of stuff to the whole time. Come, come on, can't you hit any hard? And, and George Foreman is just laying it out on him, right? He, he is just hitting him. And in that same time, he's getting very tired, <laughs> right? He, he is getting absolutely worn out. And Ali takes all of these things and he just lets Foreman attack, attack, attack. And he's waiting for that moment when the counterattack comes. Now, uh, if you don't know, Ali won that fight, but uh, that, that is kind of like what's going on here in our account today. You know, the, this, the, the opportunity now is for Jesus' question. Right? We, we went through rounds one, two, and three. He handled everything that they threw at him, and now they don't even want to talk anymore. They're out of position. They're worn out. They're tired, and Jesus is going to throw out a question to them. This is Jesus' counterattack, and it's going to expose the hearts of the Sanhedrin. It's going to expose the hearts of the Jewish leaders for everyone to see. Verse 35 describes it this way. Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus is bringing up a question here that they would have all been familiar with at this time. You know, uh, who is the Messiah? And the common answer would have been the son of David. Um, That would not have been a, a surprise. Uh, he is standing in the temple, and when we talk about the temple here, remember the temple has outer courts, and uh, it, it sounds here that there's a large crowd gathered, and so probably this is in the outer courts of the, the temple. Jesus is doing what, what he does best. He is there with a large group of people, and he's teaching them. He's instructing them in the things of God, something he loved to do. And, and so among the group there, it says that he posed this question uh, with in regard to the scribes, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? We talked about the scribes before. They were like the attorneys. They were the ones who studied the law. So they would have been experts in the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and so Jesus, as he stands there, the crowd is listening to him. And the scribes are obviously there as well, probably members of the Sanhedrin. Remember all those who just launched their attacks at him. And he asked that question in verse 35. How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not doubting this, right? He he knows that he is the son of David. He is not doubting this. In fact, he knows that that all Jews believe that the Messiah is is the son of David, that he's going to come from David's line. And and we know that uh, people who heard this question would have understood that because Mark has pointed it out to us throughout his gospel account. I'm just going to look at, at two quick examples. Uh, in Mark 10, verse 47, there was blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, Jesus will heal him. But in verse 47, Bartimaeus, it says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What's he saying? Jesus, you, you're the Messiah. You're the son of David. Heal me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. Jesus responds to that. He, he does what he asks. Well, Why? He recognized this, this one Jesus is the son of David. He is crying out. He is the Messiah. And all those standing there would have known exactly what Bartimaeus was saying. You know, not, not only that, but the folks in, in Jerusalem understood that the Messiah would be the, the son of David. Mark 11, and uh, if we begin in verse 9, this is Palm Sunday. It says, when they went before and they followed and cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What are they putting out? Here's the Messiah. He is the son of David. 
He is from David's line. And they, they are crying it out for all people to see. Now, remember, they're looking for a political messiah. They, they are not looking some, for someone to come and die on the cross for their sins. They are looking for someone to overthrow Rome here. Uh, but they knew that the messiah was from the line of David. They had at least that much understanding. You know, pe- people today, they, they do things where, where we, we talk about uh, the political aspects of Christianity, right? And people start mixing the gospel in with, with politics in different ways. And you hear things like God and country rallies and things like that. What, what, what's going on? Well, let's have believers take over our nation for God. Well, hey, I, I'm all for, for our government being more godly in its actions, right? But that's not why Jesus came, right? Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to prop up the United States. That was not his goal. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. And so uh, while I certainly want our political leaders to get saved, I want them to act in a more godly manner, right? I, I know that regardless of the nation, God is sovereign and he's in control. And he's in as much control over all the other nations of the world as he is over the United States. He is over all the world and sovereign in all the world. So uh, mix, mixing the gospel uh, somehow with politics is not going to gain for us political freedom. It just doesn't work that way. There's a good quote I heard, and I, I, I thought it was appropriate for today. It, said, it went something like this, and I can't remember exactly who said it, but uh, it's not original with me. Uh, All the kingdoms of the world are but the scaffolding upon which Jesus will build his church. All, right? all, all, all these nations, all these kingdoms out there, well, Jesus is going to build his church throughout the whole world. And uh, through that process, he, he's going to do it in the midst of, of government. I'm very thankful for our country. I'm very thankful for the scaffolding that's surrounding Grace Baptist Church. And I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. You know, there, there are churches that, that are, are meeting on, on today, on Sunday, throughout the world. And some of them are in fear. Some of them are afraid that, that either their enemies or governments will come in in the midst of their service. I have never experienced that. You know, my, my, uh, my, my father-in-law, who we visited in, in, in Poland, has, has experienced having agents of the Soviet Union sitting in his church services before, taking notes and paying attention to what's being said. I have never experienced that. And, and I am thankful for the scaffold of the United States in, in which we meet. We, we have great privileges here in this nation. But, you know, God's going to build his church all around this world regardless of the country, regardless of the area. Jesus will build his church. That's God's privilege. That's God's doing. Verse 36 goes on, and we have here a a note. It says, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now this is a a quote here, uh, and, and it points back to Psalm 110. This is actually the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. Right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So what's going on here? The Father God, that's Lord, Yahweh, you see it in all caps there, said to my Lord, who was that? Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand. And of course we understand Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right, so here is Jesus asking about a psalm that's speaking of himself. And it's a, it's a messianic psalm. He knows that. They know that. They understand that this is a messianic psalm that he's quoting to them. And so he, he, is, he is quoting before them a, a, a psalm having to do with himself. And so 
we, we see here that Jesus is noting, first of all, that, that David wrote the psalm. Right? So he, he's pointing to the psalm and saying, who, who actually pinned this out? Well, that was David. Now, there's a lot of controversy in our days because some people don't believe what the Bible clearly says. A lot of liberal theologians out there debate who wrote Psalm 110. You know, it's pretty clear to me. Jesus said David wrote it. <laughs> Shouldn't be a problem. It, it ought to be pretty straightforward. And, and yet people still debate over this issue. Why? They don't believe the word of God. Right? They're calling Jesus a liar. It's also interesting to note that Jesus noted that David wrote it, how? Not in his own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we call that? We call that inspiration. That, that means when Jesus is pointing back to Psalm 110, he's saying, yeah, David penned it, but these words came from the Holy Spirit. These words came from God. What's that? That's God's word. Inspiration in, in the original language has the idea of God breathed or God breathed out. What does that mean? It is the word of God. That's what Psalm 110 is. That's what the Bible is. And Jesus here is putting it clearly in front of everybody. Here's what David wrote. He wrote it before all people, and he wrote it by the power of the Holy Ghost because he's writing God's word. So maybe you're saying, well, where, where is the question Jesus is asking in all this? Well, look ahead to verse 37. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? All right, so here, here's the question. Right, we, we went back to Psalm 110, and remember at, at the very beginning... Why do the scribes say that Jesus is the son of David? Why do the, the scribes say that Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Let's look back at 110. 110, Psalm 110 says the Lord, Yahweh, said to the son, Jesus, sit at my hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Wait, what do we have here? David is writing and he talks about the Messiah and he calls him Lord. So the question then in verse 37, David called the Messiah Lord. How could he do that if this is his son? How can, how can David say to his son, you are my Lord? That just wouldn't have happened. Right? I, I don't say to my son Daniel, hey Daniel, you're the boss. I don't say that to him. Why? He's my son. I don't care if he's 80 years old and I'm 100. I'm not going to say to him, hey, you're the boss, right? So some of you are used to dealing with, with, with grandparents and folks as they get older and older. How many of them say to you, hey, you're the boss. You just do whatever you want. I'll just come along. If, if folks have capacity, they, they tell you what they want, right? You don't tell your kids, hey, you just lead me around. We'll just do whatever. That's not how it works. And Jesus said here, that wouldn't ha isn't how it would have worked with David. So why is he speaking to his son here and, and calling him Lord? Verse 37 says, the common people heard him gladly. That crowd who's gathered around, they're saying, wow, that's a, that's a good question. That's interesting, Jesus. I'm glad you asked. That's really interesting. Right? If, if the coming Messiah is the son of David, how does David call him Lord? How could you have an offspring and at the same time refer to him as though he's your God? So remember, this, this question all began with, with the scribes. Hey, you know, the scribes say this. They're, they're the ones that say that the Messiah is the son of David. 
But how does that work, scribes? What's up with this? What's your answer on this? What's this? It's a counterattack. How can the son of David be called Lord by David himself? What's the answer to that question? We know it today, right? It's not a problem for us. Jesus Christ isn't just the son of David, right? He is more than just the son of David. Jesus Christ is more than a man. You know, my, my son Daniel will never be more than a man. Right? I, I won't have to look to him and say, hey, Lord, <laughs> right? hey, Master, I, I won't ever have to do that. But it wasn't so with Jesus because Jesus Christ is also God. When the Messiah came, God would come in the flesh. And Jesus was the God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. Now, the scribes who were standing before Jesus that day, even if he claimed Messiahship, which he did, right, and, and they didn't recognize him as the Messiah at all. They didn't even recognize him as the 100% man Messiah. They, they didn't recognize that. But, but here is Jesus standing before them, right, and, and they would never believe he is 100% God. I mean, they won't believe that he's, he is the man-based Messiah, certainly not the God-man. But should they have known? Should they have, have figured it out by now? And the, the answer to that is, of course, they should have known. There, there were people standing all around who had figured this out at this point in time. You know, when, when, when Mark gave this gospel, he, he starts at the very beginning in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and he starts at the very beginning, and he says, yeah, we're going to see Son of David all throughout. And we're going to see these accounts of the Messiah being the Son of David. But let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you who Jesus Christ is. He's the Son of God. You know, he's not simply man. He is the God-man. And, and many people knew, many people understand throughout, throughout Mark's account, through the gospel account here, that, that the one standing before them actually truly is the Messiah, that Jesus is the God-man. You remember the, the account before Peter, when, as the, the disciples are saying, well, these are who men say that you are, Jesus. And Jesus asked him, Mark 8, verse 29, he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter gives him the answer. Peter said unto him, Thou art the Christ. Right? He gives that declaration. You are the anointed one. You, you are the holy one. You are the Messiah. Peter knew the answers. So, so the question then is, what is Jesus doing here with the scribes? Well, this is a counterattack. He is putting them on notice before all the crowd. All right, you, you look at the Messiah, you say that he will be in the line of David. Everybody here knows I'm in the line of David. Everybody here knows that. You, you are saying that, but can he just be a man? And so Jesus is standing before them giving a declaration that, look, the Messiah, the son of David, he's also the son of God. He is the God-man. And yet you will not believe you see, in churches today, there, there are churches all around the peninsula that are meeting today. And in those churches, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great person. There are churches today that teach about Jesus and say, you know, it's good to have a moral foundation. And so we're going to talk about Jesus. But you know what? 
talking about Jesus is not enough, if you don't recognize that he is who he said he is. Now, the scribes in that day, they talked about this coming Messiah. They talked about the Christ who would be there. They just didn't recognize that he was Jesus. They, they didn't believe that that's who he was. Is it possible that the scribes are just making a mistake? Maybe they, maybe they just kind of got it wrong. Maybe they didn't understand. Maybe it's kind of like that boxing match and they were just out of position a little bit. You know, they opened themselves up. They weren't thinking clearly. Were they just simply mistaken? Well, no, that's not it at all. See, what we saw here is, first of all, that Jesus not only exposes the Jewish leaders, but secondly, that he condemns the Jewish leaders. See, Jesus is, is not just simply going to let them off the hook in front of all the people. He's going to tell them exactly what's going on in their hearts. Because everybody there have seen the scribes standing there, and Jesus asked the question, but guess what? There is no answer that comes from the scribes. That, just like they before kept their mouth shut, <laughs> right? He, he, I, I can imagine them just kind of slinking away into the corners, <laughs> trying to get a little bit further away as Jesus is, is declaring truth, and all the crowd is seeing it and saying, wow, this is becoming more and more clear. You don't condemn somebody simply for being mistaken. But you do condemn them when they attack you, when they attack the Son of God, when they have the Messiah standing before them and yet they still want to keep their power and authority over and above God himself. Jesus is not getting, getting, having a description here just because they're out of position. Jesus is going to expose their hearts and their hypocrisy for all to see. Verse 38 here, Mark 12, verse 38 says, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go long, go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplace, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. You see, this is not simply a mistake. Jesus is saying they're hypocrites. They're trying to be something, pretend to be something that they're not. You know, pe people all, all around the world sometimes act like serving the Lord is just a, a career path choice, right? <laughs> what, what am I going to do next? Well, maybe should I be a doctor? Or maybe I should go to law school. Maybe I'll be a truck driver. Maybe I'll be a shipyard worker. Or, or perhaps I'll be a religious leader. You know, <laughs> that'd be a good option. You know, which, which one should I take? And, and sometimes this happens even in the hearts of unbelievers. And you get unbelievers put up in front of groups as, as religious leaders. Why would they do this? Why in the world would they ever do this? Well, verse 38 makes it clear. They love to go in long clothing. So that's saying they love to stand up in, in front of people in, in these wonderful robes for everybody to look at them and, and see them. They... You know, in certain traditions today, religious leaders still wear robes. So, some wear a particular collar so that they look different than everybody else. They, they stand out, something special. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I'm just in a regular old suit, the same one you can pick off the shelf at JCPenney or somewhere else. Right? If you want to splurge, go to Joseph A. Bank during a sale. Right? Don't do it all the time, just during the sales. Uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it, how it works, right? Why are you not dressed up into to something special? Why don't you have the big robe on? 
she have a big old hat? You know, like some of those cardinals and stuff. Well, the answer's simple. It's because I'm no different than you. I'm just like you. And we could put it this way. You probably heard this before. The ground is level as, at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes to Jesus the same way. And, and so, yeah, God's called me to the vocation of the pastor. He, he did that. He chose that. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I get somehow this special treatment. Right? It doesn't mean that everybody has to look to me for everything. You have a vocation that you do. You probably have a job that you do. Some of you have, have, have retired. You've got another job that you do, keeping your house and all those things, right? But you know, being a pastor doesn't mean people, you stand in a crowd and everybody goes, Oh, look, there's John. <laughs> That's not how it works. Right? Out in the community sometimes, I'll have conversations with people. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, well, what do you do for work? And somebody will ask you that question. And I'll say, well, you know, well, I'm a pastor. It's amazing how many times I get the response, well, you don't look like a pastor. What do you say? Well, I, I say, thank you. You know, you know what I look like? I look like everyone else. Uh, why? Because I'm like everyone else, right? I have the same struggles that you do. I go through the same challenges that you do. And uh, certainly there, there are those who like recognition. You know, you say their name, well, I am Reverend so-and-so, right? I'm Father so-and-so. And, and I get that. There, there are people who still are used to that tradition. Uh, there, there is a, a lady who calls the, the church who, who, from, from, on a business standpoint. Uh, she lives up, up north and I believe has a Catholic background. She calls me Father John. <laughs> I'm not Father John. Right? I, I understand. She's trying to show respect and be kind. And she comes from a tra tradition where that's demanded. Um, I, I understand how she got there. Um, but that's not what I'm concerned with. Verse 38 says that these scribes love salutations in the marketplaces. I'm not concerned about that. My name is John. Paul's name was Paul and Peter's name is Peter. Right? What's going on? The, the folks who love the salutations, it's hypocrisy in their hearts. They want the best for themselves. And they're not concerned about other people as they seek to do it. Verse 39 goes on and says, They want the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts. We would say the best seat at the dinner table. Reserved seating, special discounts. You know, every now and then we get special discounts as pastors. I was, I was uh, in line with Daniel one time. We were getting uh, photos uh, on uh, Santa's lap, right? We're over in Linhaven Mall in Virginia Beach. And a lady comes up to me. She said, are you military? Because they were offering military discounts. I said, no. She said, well, are you a teacher? I said, well, no. And, and she starts listing this. I said, why don't I just tell you what I am? <laughs> you know, because it will be faster. I said, I said I'm, I'm, just, I'm a pastor. That's all. I, I'm none of those things. She said, okay, well, we'll give you the military discount. <laughs> I said, well, I, I didn't ask for that. <laughs> all right, so, so she writes it all there. So I, I take the thing up to pay. And it, it has the M on there for military discount. And the cashier says to me, are you military? And I said, no, I'm not military. <laughs> he said, well, why does it say you have a military? Like I was the one, you know, who was claiming this valor or something for myself. I didn't ask for this. You know, I didn't. I just told her I'm a pastor. I said, she put it on there, not me. <laughs> you know, I didn't do this. And uh, well, what happened? I, I got a 10% discount that day. 
for being a pastor under the military somehow, and I don't know how it worked, but, but, but that's what happened. You don't become a pastor for the discounts, right? That's not why you do it. And yet there are people who, who see those opportunities and see those things as, as they're happening, and they, they say, well, you know, there are certain benefits that come. You get a little tax break here and there. And they say, that, that might not be such a bad life. What's going on? They, these are folks who, in their hearts, are absolute hypocrites. They don't understand the things of God. You know, not only do they enjoy their stature before people, they're, they're even willing to participate in unethical behavior. Verse 40 goes on and says, Which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. You know, it's hard to be a widow today. It was harder back then. They, they would take advantage of widows. That's how much they wanted to claim things for themselves. They make long prayers, so there's nothing wrong with praying out loud. We do that today. There's not even anything wrong with long prayers, necessarily. You know, if I'm being honest, it's not my general habit, but some of you like that. Right? I know folks who pray long prayers, and that's okay. But there is a problem with doing it if you do it so that others will think more highly of you. Right? If the prayer is not about leading people uh, in, in talking to God, and it's more about, hey, look at me. Right? That's where the problem comes in. And the, the, the scribes, they weren't leading others to God. They are self-focused in their actions. Now, verse 40 ends with a certain condemnation here. So it says, they shall receive greater damnation. What's going on? These religious hypocrites, they're the ones who Jesus singles out and says they will receive greater condemnation. So the question comes up with that. Well, are you saying there are degrees of punishment in hell? Well, let's, let's consider another verse. Um, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 says, Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Okay, so these are cities that heard Jesus preach. They saw his miracles firsthand, and now Jesus is speaking concerning them. Verse 21 here, Matthew 11, verse 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if, thy, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right, so what's, what's going on? seems here there's a different degree of judgment going on for different cities. Some will receive more punishment. Which ones receive more punishment? Those that received more revelation. Let's look ahead, verse 22. Uh, go, going on here, I mean, verse 23 in Matthew 11. Verse 23, and thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And when we think about Sodom, right? Good place, wicked place. Right? Wicked place, right? No doubt about it. Right? Wicked place. Not just a wicked place, a really wicked place. Place of darkness, not a place of light. And, and yet, there it was. Jesus is saying, in comparison between Sodom and Capernaum, it's going to be worse for Capernaum. Why? 
Because Capernaum is such worse sinners? No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying they committed worse sin. Rather, but because Capernaum was such a place of light. And yet they still rejected it. Yeah, this, this ought to answer the, the question, are, are there degrees of punishments? It certainly would seem so. And there are those who, according to Mark 12.40, will receive greater condemnation than others. There will be those who receive greater condemnation. Now, let's be clear here. All who fail to put their faith, their saving faith in Jesus Christ, will face condemnation. There's no doubt about that. Scripture is abundantly clear. And hell is a terrible place. And it's not a terrible place for some and not for others. It's a terrible place for everyone in hell. Hell is a terrible place. For everyone who does not believe, it will be a terrible place. And yet it seems that for some people, it will be even worse for others than for others. And so what kind of people would that be? This may change your thinking a little bit about hell. Who, who will hell be absolutely worse for? Right? We, we, a lot of times, I think, think of that and we, we say, well, yeah, the, the hottest place in hell is reserved for, and you fill in the blank, right? The, the, the murderers, the, the people who hurt children, fill in the blank, right? That's, that's reserved for them. Jesus actually says, who is the hottest place in hell reserved for? Who is the place with most condemnation reserved for? The people who know their Bibles and yet don't believe. The people who are like the scribes, who spend their time studying the word of God, and yet they're hypocrites. The people who grow up in church, that's who it's reserved for. People who live in areas like the peninsula where we have churches on all these different corners and you probably had to pass three or four of them just to get here today. People like that who have have places where there are actually good Bible-believing churches all around. You know, people who come to Sunday school, that's who those places of greater condemnation are reserved for. Those kids who go to Christian school and use Christian curriculum and yet still do not believe The ones who receive the light and then yet reject it, who will receive the greater condemnation? Those who receive more teaching and yet still refuse to respond to Jesus by faith. You know, the question before the scribes that day was really simple. Who was Jesus? I mean, Jesus might as well have been standing before them saying, who am I? How did the scribes knew the answer? Well, they, how, how did the scribes answer? Well, they understood part of it, right? said, well, this Messiah who comes, he'll be the son of David. He'll be in David's line. And they understood that Jesus was in David's line, although they didn't claim him as the Messiah. You know, there are many people who believe this today. Even Jesus himself. Yeah, he he was in the line of David. He actually literally existed. He walked the earth. He was a good teacher. He was a good person. He was moral. He was a philosopher. Some might even say he was a prophet. See, Jesus was more than a man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was God in the flesh. And those who refuse to put saving faith in Jesus will face condemnation. Those who know the Word of God, and yet they still refuse to put saving faith in Jesus Christ, they will face even greater condemnation. You know, that ought to cause fear. That should cause fear in our lives. That should cause a degree of fear. I fear for my son. Growing up in the church, hearing the word of God all the time, I fear for him. My prayer is that he will respond to the revelation that he receives. 
You know, I, I was, I was uh, putting Dan, Daniel down for, for bed last night. And, and we're sitting there, and, 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 and he's laying down, and he's asking me questions because he, he's thinking about the funeral for Mrs. Fuller. He's thinking about the memorial service yesterday. And he's asking me those questions. He's, he's asking me, he says, well, is, is Mrs. Fuller with Jesus? Yes, she's with Jesus. Where's her body? How's that going to work? How will she get her body back? I mean, all of these questions running through the mind of a four-year-old. You know, our, our kids who hear the Bible, they know great things. May they respond in saving faith. May they respond to that greater revelation which they receive. You know, if, if you're here today or if you're listening online, either way, these words that you have heard today are, are very simple. You can know for sure that you're going to heaven by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, the one who died on the cross for your sins. It, it really is that simple. And, and today, as you're hearing this, it's not just simply because if you don't, you will face condemnation. Right? You, have re, you have heard great revelation from the word of God today. The warning is, is even this. You will face greater condemnation. Greater condemnation than others who did not hear this level of revelation and truth. There, there are some who are hearing this, and, and folks who I know, who can present the gospel as it as it's described in the Bible more clearly than I could ever dream to. And yet they still do not believe. If they never believe in this life, they will face greater condemnation. But there's hope. If you simply believe in Jesus, if you recognize he is who he says he is, he is 100% God, he's 100% man. He, he truly is the son of God and the son of David. And, and he came to earth, God in flesh. And he died on the cross, shed his own blood for the sins of the world. And by trusting in him, his sacrifice, I can have my sins forgiven. You can know that you can be forgiven too. Just simply that, it really is that simple. Just simply believe. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. And, and that you would not rest waiting for condemnation to come. So then it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Father, we thank you for our Savior. Father, we thank you for the example of Christ who not only lived without sin, but who confronted sinners and hypocrites. He confronted those who were leading people astray. And he spoke truth, even to those who seemingly had power on the earth. Father, we thank you for his example. Father, we're thankful for a Savior today who, although he faced the cross, was not impotent. He was not without power. Father, as those weak humans stood before him, he challenged them with the truth, with the heart and the desire that they would be saved. Father, for those of us who have heard truth, who have heard the word of God, may we be people who respond saving faith. Father, may we be people who respond daily living out our faith as well. We'd be an example for others. 
Father, may we see others as Jesus saw them, with a desire to see the lost saved, a desire to see those who know you, to grow in their faith through your church. Father, we just give you the praise for how you've worked in our lives and hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.